0: Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle-enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a healthy and heartfelt life. So today's guest is a big deal. His name is Dr. Wayne Jonas. He was, in the 1990s, the head of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health Office of Alternative Medicine. He's been a military physician for 20 years. He led the World Health Organization's Collaborative Center for Traditional Medicine. Uh, he's done fascinating experiments at uh, as the director of medical research at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And he is fascinated with the idea of healing, which to him is different from healthcare. In fact, he calls the healthcare system a triple oxymoron. It doesn't produce a lot of health, it doesn't care for its patients or its constituents, doctors and nurses and other allied health professionals, and it's not a system. So in this interview, we talk about his 2018 book, How Healing Works. And in the book, he talks about placebo a lot, but reframes it because placebo is sort of like, oh, we, we can, we're so foolish, we're so gullible, we can trick ourselves into taking an expensive big red pill and thinking we're better when we're actually not. And he frames it as a completely natural and kind of transcendent way that our bodies are always moving towards wholeness. He defines, instead of placebo, as sort of meaning and context. So this is a, a fascinating man. He is both at the, the, the front lines of very serious medical research and a real openness to alternatives, to uh, things that don't reduce us to just a bag of chemicals. And that's very appealing to me because in the nutrition space, we can still think of ourselves as a bag of chemicals and the food we're eating as a bag of chemicals. And we want to be eating, you know, the plant-based bag of chemicals rather than the animal-based or the processed bag of chemicals. But there's so much more to it. Than that for one example, dr. Jonas points out that if the Mediterranean diet that has been shown to be much healthier than the standard American diet and in in lots of large scale studies you know it's it's sort of held up as a gold standard even though we know <laughs> better um, but that what one of the things that n- nobody noticed or or thought to Consider significant was the fact that when people were eating the Mediterranean diet in their little Mediterranean villages and towns and cities, they were eating together and they were eating as a family and they were eating as a celebratory gathering of community rather than just eating the bag of Mediterranean diet chemicals in their cars on their way to work. So Dr. Jonas's work is very much in the tradition of T. Colin Campbell's work in whole in kind of arguing against reductionism. And it's a, a beautiful addition to the field. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So what kind of business do we have to get out of the way today before we can get to it? Not a lot. Um, all I want to say is I really appreciate all the people who have become patrons of the show. And if you're not a patron and you can't afford to be and it's a mission you'd like to support, I welcome you to go to Patreon.com, search for Plant Yourself and join the community of people who are helping to make this show a reality. That's all I can think of. So without further ado, so Dr. Wayne Jonas, welcome to the Plant
1: Yourself podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, uh, how I en- really enjoy your uh, podcast and uh, and so glad to be on it. Awesome. So um, I would love, so we're, we're going to be talking about healing, which is unfortunately quite different from what I usually talk about, which is healthcare. Um, uh-huh. There's a big difference between healthcare and healing, and we need to get our healthcare system focused more on healing and the creation of well-being. That's uh, sort of what it ought to be doing, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and, and your opinion is, is backed by, by decades of, of research and practice and leadership. And I wonder if you could just kind of give us the thumbnail of, of your career and what brings you to, uh, to, to the work you're doing now.
1: No, sure. I mean, it's been a a long career and a lot of lessons that I learned, mostly from my patients, but also from uh, having been in fortunate positions to be able to examine the traditional, the the world healing traditions uh, uh, from the NIH, from the World Health Organization centers that I ran, from the Office of Alternative Medicine that I ran for a number of years, and also from the perspective of, uh, you know, a mainstream provider. I was trained as a Conventional Western doctor, and uh, I became a family physician. I practiced in the military for 20 years, over 20 years, uh, and uh, part of that time I spent doing research at Walter Reed and teaching research, uh, and really had the opportunity to take a look through the scientific lens and through my own practice um, what were the components of healing traditions including the Western tradition, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, uh, complementary and alternative medicine through a scientific lens. Uh, And that and really examining and carefully working with patients uh, really taught me what are the components that really cut across all of those systems that are the fundamental things that support facilitate healing and well-being. And that's what the book is about. It's about those lessons learned and how you can apply that uh, today.
0: Great. So a couple of lines really jumped out at me. One of them on page 197 is that um, the, the, the health care system is a triple oxymoron. <laughs> so you say it produces only about 20 percent of the public's health. It is difficult for those working in it to deliver it compassionate care, and it is not an integrated system no health no care not a system so can can we go over each of the each of those i think a lot of the book is about the fact that it's that our healing our healthcare modalities produce about 20 to 30 percent of the healing and something else is responsible for the the rest of the 70 to 80 percent when it occurs so um let's go let's let's go let's go go through like because that's a pretty bold statement
1: yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, it's true. And, and, uh, and in the U.S., it's uh, getting more true, actually, as the healthcare costs go up, as our um, healthcare outcomes go down, which have been documented, including our life expectancy, which over the last uh, two years has actually declined after having gone up for 80 years uh, after that. And most people who get uh, ill and actually enter into the system. Um, are not very satisfied with it. It doesn't seem to care for them very well. It sort of is running its, uh, its own business and not doing that. And, and that's why I say it's a triple oxymoron. The data is very clear. It's been published by National Academy of Medicine, Robert Wood Johnson, multiple other studies, uh, that the healthcare care, um, we have a, a pathology system. We have a treatment system that waits till you get sick, uh, and then it throws a lot of expensive interventions at you. Uh, And those interventions are essential when you're sick and you're close to dying or if you have an accident or an infection or cancer or something like that, a heart attack. uh, They can save your life, no question about it. Uh, And yet uh, we now know that many of those conditions are preventable. Many of them are even reversible. Uh, Chronic illnesses are reversible. But we have a system that's set up to wait uh, until uh, you get them. Uh, And then uh, and then throw interventions at them. Uh, You know, I learned from the textbook of pathology when I was in medical school, and I learned what's called something called pathogenesis, which means the creation, the genesis of pathology. And my job was to stop that, right? Uh, Well, the flip side of that is salutogenesis. And I, I use that word in my book. Saluto is health. Genesis is the creation of health. And we need a healthcare system that not only you know saves us when we're having a heart attack, but also then does the things necessary to prevent and re- reverse uh, the underlying processes that led to that.
0: Right. So, so a lot of the the stories in the book are, are not prevention stories. Right. They're stories of people who are seeking healing of one sort or another, and how um, what brings them healing isn't. What's typically in the, in the, in the medical toolkit that there's, there's, there's other things and, and it's not, um, there's no form, there's no one formula for healing. Can you talk about kind of your, some of the work you've done and some of the, you know, like one thing I got from your book, unfortunately, was a reading list of like 30 other books I had to read. <laughs> so, uh, you should, you should get an Amazon commission for the, the number of books I've, uh, I've, um, you know, gone to buy since reading your book, but there's this huge literature on healing as something separate from simply the the, the drugs and the surgeries and the procedures that Western medicine does.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, even the origins of Western medicine knew th- know this. I, uh, I, I, I describe how Hippocrates actually sort of understood the fundamental processes of healing and implemented that and trained doctors at doing that. Uh, as well as other uh, traditional systems from around the country, uh, even though it's uh, a ver- there's a variety of approaches, there is a-, a standard process that occurs that I describe. We know, for example, that uh, that health comes when you're living in a healthy environment. So I talk about the physical environment and the importance of light, exposure to nature, uh, fresh air, clean water, those types of things. We know those things are key, parts of keeping healthy and even recovery. We know, for example, that 60 to 70% of the chronic diseases that we suffer today are lifestyle-based. They have to do with uh, four simple things, Uh, diet, sleep, exercise, how you move, and stress in those areas. We know that the ability to actually implement the, those kinds of healthy behaviors is dependent upon two things. Num, number one, it's the social and emotional environment you're in, your family, your friends, uh, the loves, the fears, and how you manage those. And then finally, the mental and spiritual components. Uh, you know, why are you here? Uh, what do you live for? Uh, are your health behaviors and is your health care aligned with uh, with your life goals? And when you can get all of those lined up, you can find uh, the pathway in to your own healing journey, even if you're fairly far along. I, I write uh, I write, a number of, uh, uh, write about a number of patients that uh, I've had over the many years who uh, have had, for example, 10 years of chronic pain, multiple treatments, surgeries, injections, medications, etc. Who, when they were able to identify sort of why they wanted to improve their pain, what they lived for in their life on a sort of a mental and a social and emotional level and a family level. Uh, They were able to actually start their healing journey and get back and recover their health and improve their pain. Mm. Um, um,
0: Yeah. So, so one, like in the beginning of the book, you talk, you talk about placebo and like there's, there's been a, I think in the last 30 or 40 years, a real, evolution of how we think about placebo, where, you know, in the late 40s when they had the first randomized trials, placebo was the thing that you had to try to eliminate to find the truth. Then it became okay, well, we are gullible and we believe anything and you can fool us with the size of the pill or the color of the pill or the the belief of the practitioner. So let's use that. But you approach placebo in a in a very different way. I think sort of informed by Ted Kapchuk Um, at, at, at Harvard, you, you kind of take the stigma out of placebo. Like I'm not gullible for believing it, but you're putting it in some in some bigger, more noble human context. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I think there is a uh, there's a huge knowledge base that comes out of research uh, in which placebos uh, have been used or which have been looked at the underlying mechanisms behind what's called a placebo effect and Dan Morman and I from the University of Michigan years ago, and I reiterate this in in, in the book. Uh, I think we should stop using that word. Actually, it's it's a it's a misleading word, the placebo effect, because it doesn't call it what it is. What it is is the meaning and context effect. It's actually the healing effect that occurs from the meaning that we have in what we do and the context, the surrounding uh, of how we do it, the rituals that occur uh, that induce an inner healing response that is inherent in all of us. And uh, now we know when we begin to look at it that way that uh, the, the what, what is called a placebo effect, which has been used to sort of determine, uh, to say, the things that happen instead of the chemical, right? Uh, (laughs) um, And those are actually the the bulk of what happens in healing, actually. It's one reason why it's so hard to get a new drug on the market and cost billions of dollars is because you've got to prove your chemical adds that much more healing over (laughs) the meaning and context effect. That is the ritual process. Uh, And we now know that if uh, people have... Expectations and belief about what they're doing, including the physicians, by the way, not just the patient. <laughs> if the culture they live in believes in that, uh, and if the rituals that we go through reinforce uh, that inherent healing capacity, you can tap into that in a very, very powerful way. And that's been shown across multiple conditions, across multiple studies. And so we should be harnessing the effect. Of the meaning and context response, uh, and beginning to infuse it in uh, in all of our approaches uh, to healing, and we would enhance our healing. And I've seen that in my own practice. We would enhance our our healing capacity, no matter what methodology or modality uh, that we're using.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there there was there was a
0: study and an anecdote that you share in the book that were really eye opening to me about this meaning. And context effect. Uh, well, the study was, I believe, it was it was uh, dentists who were yes. who were told which whether their patients received a placebo, um, naxolone, or or, um, or painkiller. Right. And all the patients received the placebo, but the ones whose dentists believed they received the painkiller reported
1: less pain, even without the dentist telling them. Now, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the myths about the placebo effect is that it's only about the patient's belief. Uh, And that is, that's not true. This was, these these studies, there was a couple of them done by uh, the former NIH researcher, the late NIH researcher, uh, Richard uh, Gracely, brilliant investigator. And uh, he wanted to know, well, what, what, what influenced the belief and the expectation of the physician, of the provider have uh, on the outcome? So he designed these ingenious experiments in which he would tell the providers, in this case, it was dental surgeons, that the model they were looking at was pain after you had your uh, wisdom teeth extracted. Uh, and he told half of them that their patients might be getting a, a painkiller uh, and then he told the other half that they uh, wouldn't be getting a painkiller. They'd be getting either a placebo or something that might actually increase their pain. Naloxone might actually increase your pain because it blocks your own endogenous painkillers. Uh, and then, of course, he gave all the patients placebo. He told them not to talk to their patients. It was a study about them, so not, don't tell them they were involved in a study. But then he measured the pain in the patients, <laughs> okay, and those in which the, uh, the oral surgeon's Believed that their patients could be getting a painkiller had much less pain, so there was an expectation and a belief that the providers had, the physicians had, uh, that then influenced uh, the pain experience and the pain outcomes of the patients. Uh, it wasn't about the belief of the patients. The patients thought they were all just getting routine stuff,
0: right? And and before I get to the um, the anecdote that you tell, which is about the, the your, your patient who did hyperbar- hyperbaric. Um, Th- you know, therapy, but like to me that that can lead to a problem in a, in a for a physician who wants to tell the truth that it's almost yeah. like, yes, if you you know the more you lie <laughs> or believe you, you know what I'm saying that um, you know if if you give a a sort of realistic diagnosis or or temper the expectations, you're actually reducing the potential meaning and heal and and context effect. Of, of healing in your patient.
1: Yes. Well, you can't lie. You shouldn't be lying. Uh, that's unethical to do. And it's also damaging because it ruptures trust uh, between the patient and the physician. Uh, and it's just unethical to do. You shouldn't be lying to patients. Um, but understanding the placebo effect as the meaning and context effect shows you don't actually have to do that. You can actually... Uh, tell the, the patient that we're going to go through this treatment ritual uh, and if you do that with me, uh, it's likely that it's going to benefit you. Uh, you know, this was a question uh, that, uh, that Ted Kapchuk actually asked from Harvard that you mentioned earlier. Uh, he wanted to know that, well, if you told a person it was a placebo, you said, well, this is an inert pill, okay, there's no therapeutic value in it, but if you do it anyway, uh, it's likely that you'll get better, which the research actually shows. And those studies are called open placebo studies. So they're open, meaning you know it's a placebo. You go through the treatment anyway, and then you look at the effects. And they've now done uh, probably over a dozen of these studies in a variety of conditions, including you know serious chronic conditions like low back pain. And they've shown that uh, you can tell somebody that you're going to give them a placebo. You take them through the ritual of the visit and the treatment and the pill and that type of stuff, and it works just as well. (laughs) if they know or they don't know. It's not just what you think up here. It's the cultural belief, expectation, and meeting that your unconscious and your culture um, uh, imbues, uh, activates in you. It's that healing response that occurs, and it occurs whether uh, uh, you believe it or not. Now, belief is important; you have to believe it in order to do it, right? And belief does have a uh, your 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 conscious belief does have a small effect on that. If you believe a, a treatment is going to affect it, does work a little bit better. But the most of the healing response is embedded in the therapeutic relationship and the interaction that you have uh, during and the ritual that you go through uh, during treatment mm. Mm. and this is what taps into those unconscious components i'll, I'll give you go ahead yeah no keep going well, i'll give yeah. you an example of this i mean it gets down to even the specifics of your body knowing which receptors to use uh, you know you can actually train your body to use certain receptors uh, for example if you uh, give um, a a, a placebo for pain treatment, the expectation part of it works through your endogenous opioids because you can can block that pain uh, effect with a, a drug called naloxone, which blocks the endogenous opioids. Okay, if you go through a, a ritual where you're conditioning somebody to pain, let's say you're you're giving them uh, a an opioid for painkiller, or you're giving them something like aspirin for a painkiller, and you repeatedly condition them to do that, they'll be the ritual will condition them just sort of like Pavlov's dogs to respond uh, to pain and they use different receptors. If you condition them with the opioid, they will use the opioid receptors, which you can reverse with naloxone. If you condition them with aspirin, they'll use different receptors, the cyclooxygenase receptors, which you can't reverse with naloxone. So you can actually train your body to use specific receptors to produce the same effect, depending upon the ritual uh, and the expectation that it has. Wow,
0: and this this, um, reminds me of of a, a case study you mentioned in the book about I can't remember the the condition, but it was a it was a girl who couldn't tolerate, I think, the the um, the immune reducing function of some drug. And so it was paired with with the scent of rose. Yes. Right. And, and so just like Pavlov's dog, that instead of salivating when they hear the bell, her immune system does the right thing. Now, when she smells roses, instead That's of right. taking the drugs, which had side effects that she couldn't tolerate.
1: That's right. Yeah, she had a, a very severe autoimmune disease and was on immunosuppressants to keep her autoimmune disease from acting up, but it produced significant side effects. Uh, and uh, she, so the, the pediatrician was able to actually condition the drug with the scent and the imagination, very interesting, her image, imagery in her head mm-hmm. of a rose with the immunosuppressive drug, then they were able to reduce the immunosuppressive drug, continue the scent and the imagination of the rose, which continued to produce the immunosuppression but didn't produce the side effects in those areas. It was using a conditioning, which is one of the mechanisms that underlie the placebo response uh, in those areas. So that's an example of utilizing our scientific knowledge about the mechanisms of placebo response uh, to induce healing Uh, and train your body to heal this girl was so good pretty soon she could actually induce an immunosuppressive and therapeutic response just by imagining a rose okay so she could use imagery her own mind uh, to begin to train her body in those ways and we do this all the time Uh, we do this with the food that we eat uh, with the exercise that we do with with how we interpret stresses uh, in those areas i I write a lot a lot about um uh, research of Stanford researcher Aliyah Crum, uh, who ha- talks about mind over milkshakes. Probably mm. you probably saw that, uh, that A- study. Amazing study. <laughs> in which the hormone effects in response to a high-fat or a low-fat milkshake uh, could be modulated by what type of a milkshake you thought it was, even though they were all the same milkshake uh, in those areas. If it was a high-fat milkshake, high-sugar milkshake, uh, it would induce uh, the hormones that suppressed your appetite as if you had eaten a heavy meal compared to if you thought it was a low-calorie, low-fat, low-sugar milkshake uh, and you'd be hungrier sooner after that, even though the milkshakes were exactly the same. Right. Which, which, you know, I like I don't like that because, you know, (laughs) right. I'm an
0: advocate for what I see scientifically as the most, you know, healthy diet for human beings, a a low fat, whole food, plant based diet. And yet I can see that because, you know, the the placebo or the context and meaning effect is 70 percent. That people can get better on lots of diets that they believe are going to make them better, and that people, you know, can all of a sudden decide they have a gluten sensitivity and then have it, except in controlled studies where they don't know if they're getting gluten or not. That this is—it's a lot messier
1: than I would like to believe, and that I would like to teach people. You know, uh, I think you're exactly right, and, and as you know, there's so much confusion out there about. Uh, food and about diet and this type of thing. It's why we have diets all the way from you know uh, uh, plant-based, low, car- low 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 uh, fat diets. Uh, I think uh, similar to what uh, you have talked about, all the way to Atkins diet. You know, high fat, high diet, and that kind of stuff. And every between they all claim they're they're useful. Now, uh, you know, uh, I think. Diets are not simply the chemicals in the food, and this is one of the problems. In the West, we keep thinking it's the chemicals that are producing it, right? And so we look at the composition of the food, and we think that's it. Um, You know, uh, a a friend of mine who used to study the genetic effects of the Mediterranean diet— which is a plant-based vegetable uh, diet, which is probably one of the most evidence-based using randomized control trials diets for health, now that's been studied, um, and that uh, he was studying the genetic influences of the Mediterranean diet. So he was looking at what gene expressions were emerging in the urine of people as they went on and ate these foods in Mediterranean in countries. And looking at was this correlated with risk factors for disease and that type of stuff. And then he noticed that, well, nobody simply isolated themselves off in the corner and ate those foods. Those foods were always eaten within a social context, with big preparation, with family and friends, lots of environmental cues and stimulants that occurred upon that, lots of celebration uh, that usually uh, went on, lots of socialization that went on. So he said, well, I wonder how much of these genes are turned on just by that. So he began to measure the gene uh, expression in the urine prior to them even taking a bite. And he showed that many of the same genes that they thought were due to the food they were taking were turned on even before they ever took a bite, just through the preparation, just through the socialization in those, in those areas. And so eating is not simply about the, the composition of the food. It's an entire social emotional uh, phenomena that, you're, you know, that is conditioned in you uh, from the time you're born uh, and even previ- prior to, to birth, in birth in many cases.
0: Right, and then you tell the story of Maria, this this woman who was diagnosed with, uh, I guess you know, high high pre diabetes or, or the beginnings of diabetes, and she was incredibly motivated and compliant, but she was also the the cook in the family of you know, making sort of Mexican food, Latin American food, and came back two months later depressed because she had lost the connection to her her
1: family through the through food and celebration that's right and that was an example uh, that was an example of uh, here's somebody that focuses strictly on the diet but not the importance in their life that was example of someone who had used even diet okay i mean you can use any kind of therapy to do this Uh, uh, uh... and if it's not connected to what's most important in your life, what matters in your life, uh, then you're not attending to yourself as a whole person, okay? Her social and emotional and spiritual sort of flourishing occurred because of her role as the caregiver, as the food provider uh, in her family. And so by disconnecting those things, you you were actually dividing her into two pieces and that's not whole person care, all right? So it's important, uh, and I ask all patients in my practice, I start off trying to ask what matters to them, asking them what matters in their life, and then aligning their health behaviors uh, using good evidence, as much good evidence as we can find, with what matters so that there's a a motivation uh, and an alignment. So you have to pay attention to, we sort of throw out the phrase Rapidly, but we seriously do it—mind, body, and spirit, right? <laughs> and it means mind, body, and spirit—not just body, not just uh, you know mind, not just spirit. All of those have to be looking in harmony in those areas. Let me tell you an example of a of a patient that came to me with chronic back pain—20 years of back pain. Um, older guy. Um, he had been through multiple surgeries, injections, et cetera, And he came in to see me to do a holistic or an integrative health visit. The first thing I asked him, is, I said, why do you want to get rid of this pain? What's the most important thing? What would you do if you didn't have the the pain? And he said, oh, that's easy. Um, The most important thing in my life right now is being able to get down on the floor and play with my young grandchildren, Hmm. okay? Uh, That is what I would do. And so we said, all right, let's see if we can get you to do that. So I took him up to the physical therapist and we worked out a regimen where he could begin to work on his core musculature to get up and down off the floor. Now, we weren't treating his pain. Uh, in fact, it was very painful for him to do that. Okay. Uh, and, but he worked at it because now he knew he was doing something that might help him get connected to something that was most important in his life. So he worked it, he worked it, he worked it, he worked it. And it took him about two to three months, okay, to really build that up because he'd had some severe, uh, you know, chronic pain and dysfunction, and his body had been, uh, you know, uh, surgerized and things like that. But after about three months, uh, he called me up. And he said, Dr. Jonas, I just got in my car. I drove five da- the five hours necessary down to see my grandchildren. I got down on the floor and played with them. Thank you very much. Uh, that's an exa- and his pain was better, okay? By that time, his pain actually got better because now he's moving in a way through the pain towards what he wanted in life. Uh, and that actually aligned his therapeutic component and his medical treatment with his, you know, what was meaningful for his life. See, the first
0: thing that went through my mind is when you, st- you said, I started by asking him, why do you want to get rid of this pain? I thought, like, doctors would feel like idiots asking that question. You know, it's <laughs> well, like. nobody you
1: asked him that <sighs> before. They were just assuming that and they were giving him things just to get rid of his pain. But they hadn't connected it up with the most important thing. So they hadn't been able to find what was the thing that he could do that could help his pain eventually but was linked to what mattered for him. Mm. And this is the this is the the central aspect of what I call integrative health. Integrative health is the merger of conventional care with evidence-based complementary practices, non-drug approaches, and self-care. When you can get all three of those things together, that's integrative health, and that's the type of health care system we now need to develop. And the data clearly shows if you do that and you get people engaged. You improve their health, you lower costs, you know, uh, and, and you reduce side effects uh, and you improve quality of life. Mm-hmm. Right. So so we know about you know, the, the, there's three prongs.
0: There's the medical system, self-care and these alternatives. Let's, let's talk about the alternatives and complementary care for a while. You were the head of the Office of Alternative Medicine, uh, in, I think, in the 90s. Um, so one of the, one of the things you, you, you come out swinging with in the book is that very few of these are proven to be better than placebo, right? So like, you know, acupuncture, homeopathy, like most of these, like when you, when you, when you put them under the scrutiny of the, the randomized controlled trial, they don't wash out. And, and, and my assumption at that point was that you were going to, you know, say, We should not be using them. They are not proven. They're not standard of care. And yet you end up making the exact opposite argument and, in fact, pointing out that most many of our drug treatments are no better than placebo, specifically, you know, a lot of the psychiatric um, drugs. Um, So what is the role of, you know, certainly acupuncture can be cheaper than the you 1000000 know, dollars machines. Certainly, a lot of the alternative stuff has fewer side effects or benign side effects. Um, what's the, what's the role of these, you know, traditions from other cultures, from other mindsets, in
1: someone's integrative care? Yeah. So don't get me wrong here. I love science. I've been doing science all my life. Uh, I taught science for many years to uh, uh, fellows at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Uh, We did science at NIH. I spent 15 years after I left the government running an institute that was focused on research research. Uh, and science around healing. And I think science is the best way to begin to sort out the wheat from the chaff, and also to build our understanding and knowledge, which is so important in terms of helping to make decisions. Um, I also know it's a blunt instrument, okay? Especially when we get into the clinical science. We have so much tremendous knowledge about the biology of this and that, that we learn from breaking the body down into parts. But when we stick it back into the complex ecosystem that our body is, it gets pretty complicated and pretty messy. And so it's a blunt instrument. Uh, and so we utilize scientific knowledge to help understand how we work. Uh, but we have to also then be very cognizant of the complexity uh, of the body when we apply it. So my argument is not so much against science, it's not. I love evidence-based medicine, I use it, I I teach all my residents and medical uh, students uh, how to do it and the importance of doing it, but we need to pay attention uh, to the way the body actually responds uh, uh, as a complex ecosystem. And there's an emerging type of science that I write about in the book called complexity science which allows us to look at all the different factors together uh, in a quantitative scientific way and begin to use those to trace and track the complex responses that go on. And I think this is the type of science that we need to use when we apply our knowledge in the real world, in the clinical components. And fortunately now, uh, the scientific community is going in that direction. Uh, The NIH has something called All of Us, which is measuring All of a person, from the genes up to their social, uh, um, economic, uh, psychological and and, uh, uh, mental uh, um, uh, factors. Uh, we're developing a personalized precision medicine, and I write about that in the book, where we can begin to measure uh, what happens when you actually engage in behavior and lifestyle components. The microbiome is example, an, an example of that. Okay? Uh, we know that the microbiome, the bacteria that are in our gut, influence many, many aspects of our health, including our immune system, uh, and yet it's very complex. We can begin to measure that. We can begin to track that. Uh, We can be, we can begin to look at the toxicity components within our body. We can look at the optimal nutritional components within our body and we can adjust uh, lifestyle and behavior, not based on average that, uh, you know, from large studies in which the average response for people is this or that, but based on your personalized actual response to what's going on. This is the type of science that we need for uh, a salutogenic or a healing-oriented integrative health uh, type of medicine.
0: Right. And so when I think about that, I think about the way sort of subset analysis in medical trials has been misused for marketing purposes, like you know we're we're going to go in and we're you know our drug doesn't work or it 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 causes you know suicidal ideation but we're just going to keep looking until we find a group for whom it helps and then we're just going to promote that as if it was the norm where you you're really talking about a a different a, a subset analysis that's much more based on truth and ethics um how do we how do we get there with given our current economic uh model
1: well, you know, we, we've got, a, we've got a, a, a dilemma, I think, in uh, healthcare in that, um, you know, 150 years ago, uh, when we were dying from infectious diseases, when we were dying from the consequences of trauma, uh, when we didn't understand, uh, you know, the factors that went into prevention uh, and, to, and to healing. Uh, we focused, uh, we developed a science, uh, a reductionistic science, an acute care based science that really worked. It actually helped. <laughs> In fact, it worked so well that we're not dying anymore, uh, you know, as often at young ages, uh, and we're living to be old uh, ages, the aging population, because that type of science actually worked 150 years ago. And for those types of conditions, it's fantastic. We would not want to get away with it, (laughs) do away with it. If I'm having an acute heart attack or if I get in a car accident, I want to go to the emergency room and I want you to put that stand in to save my life, right? (laughs) Uh, In those areas. Um, And that's great for the acute care uh, type of an approach. Uh, But it doesn't work in the complex chronic disease multifactorial component. In fact, we know that there are multiple ways and multiple factors that both influence the risk of disease, but also enhance our own health. And so that gives us a smorgasbord of opportunities to actually enhance our health. There's multiple ways to do it. And I've tried to break it down to four main categories. The physical environment, your behavior, your social and emotional life, and then your spiritual and mental life. And if you simply ask questions, and this is what I do with my patients, about that in your life, okay, you are actually taking care of the whole person. It's not everything in the world. It's just those four things, sort of like Maslow's hierarchy. There's four, there's a core set of basic things that everybody needs to flourish, and we've now shown that not only on the psychological uh, and social level, but we've even shown it now down on the basic biology of how our body is influenced.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and the other thing that occurs to me is, you know, I'm I'm a member of a tribe, right? I'm the Whole Food Plant Based Tribe or Team, you know, Team Colin Campbell or whatever. So that we're, yeah. you know, and there's other tribes. And when you're talking about this kind of subset analysis and personalized medicine, it has to break that down to some extent. You know, so in, in, in the book that I wrote with Dr. Campbell, we use the, the metaphor of the seven blind men and the elephant, where yeah. every, everyone's like touching a different part of the elephant and trying to describe the whole elephant in terms of their limited knowledge. And the problem is not that they only have limited knowledge. The problem is their, their allegiance to their That's own, fine. right? To their own confirmation bias and the ego that gets attached to it. Um, how do you know how do researchers and practitioners and clinicians and health educators um, get more humble in the face of the, the, the opportunity for this personalization where we can say to one person, you should be 100 percent vegan and you need to eat some eggs because you're hyper hypocholesterolemic or, you know, how, how do we train people to be less
1: attached to our ideologies? <laughs> yeah, how do you train people to be less attached to their to their own uh, beliefs? Right, uh, that's a good question. I think it was uh, Albert Einstein that said it's uh, harder to change your mind than to crack an atom, actually, or <laughs> like that. Uh, and, and this this is true. We get a, We get attached to our own particular beliefs. Uh, well, we do need to be humble. There's no question about it. And again, I think science is the way to to help us sort out the wheat from the chat, as messy as it is. Okay. I mean, it's very clear, if you look at all the diets that are out there, and we'll start with diet and then I'll go wider than that, okay? If you look at all the diets that are out there, it's very clear that the best current evidence for uh, the healthiest diet, okay, is something called the Mediterranean or Mediterranean-like diet. And it is largely a (laughs) plant-based fruits, nuts and vegetable, uh, you know, some fish and meat and that type of thing a healthy fats type of diet, okay? There's no question about it. That has been tested in randomized control trials, not just observational studies where they've, you know, looked at what people tend to eat and the 100 other things that they do, and it's been shown to correlate with that. Now, there's nothing fixed about that particular diet. It's plant-based, okay? It's uh, minimally processed, okay? Uh, It uh, it doesn't use a a lot of foods that are, uh, you know, that are chemicalized, uh, processed, added sugars, added fats, added uh, salt, uh, etc. It is definitely not high in red meat, okay, and I know that's an important area. In fact, it's mostly fish based, okay, in those areas, and the amount of meat that it uses is actually fairly small. It's the vast majority of plant based. And, and other diets uh, are similar to that. The DASH diet, for example, um uh the china diet that uh dr collins wrote and everything are all that uh, uh, all that component we know that's the core basis of, of of a healthy diet in those areas um and so that's the type of thing we should be moving towards that's what the entire culture should be moving towards uh, in those areas from uh, a diet when it comes to actual healing we have to pay attention Uh, to what is meaningful for a person. And this was written about 20 years ago in the landmark work about how our healthcare system ought to operate. It was called uh, Crossing the Quality Chasm. Uh, It was the characteristics of what make up a high-quality healthcare delivery system. And uh, it said at the very beginning, put the patient in the driver's seat. It was the start of a movement we called person-centered or patient-centered care in which the patient is in the center of the driver's seat which means we have to find out what's meaningful, relevant and can be done with them. Uh, We still don't do that in healthcare very well. We still have the experts that come in and say do this, do that, do that and tell you what to do rather than saying what's meaningful in your life and let me help you get there. Mm -hmm. And that's where your work, I think, is so important as a health coach, for example. I mean, you have uh, have been and advocated and are and and done health coaching, which is very different than saying I'm the expert. I'm telling you what to do. It's saying you're in the driver's seat. I'm going to bring in and help you get to the point where you can engage in certain habits and behaviors that are going to help you flourish and help you heal. And so the new type of health care that we need is a team care in which health coaches are integral parts of that uh, and the patient actually is in the driver's seat and they decide which avenue they want to start with. If the patient comes to me and they want to do diet fair, then we start with that. If the patient comes to me and they uh, have problems in their social and emotional or social support environment, we start with that. If they come to me and they have a stress issue, major stress issue, then we start with that. Uh, You know, again, if they're ready to and the health coach then and me with along with the team helps support them to be successful in that type of self-care, which is where the other 80 percent comes from of healing.
0: Right. And one of the most beautiful phenomena that I see and experience on a regular basis is if they're if my if my clients in the driver's seat, they often call audibles and they change, you know, like as a person starts to move and exercise and they, you know, they'll come back and they'll report. I just walked my longest walk ever. I did two kilometers. Now they're a different person and they want different things. So whereas before, yes. the, the goal is I want to lose weight and you don't want to push them too hard on it because they feel bad about it because it feels like vanity. At a certain point, it's like I have higher aspirations for myself than I did before. So the the meaning can change as they as they come into alignment with what authentic human bodies or are, are meant to do.
1: That's right. Well, you've you've said it. Uh, ac- you, you've said it exactly. Uh, Howie, that's exactly Right you're really supporting them in their own healing journey. And the most important thing about the, that journey is being successful in a small goal in which you've actually been successful and you experience that success, okay? Because that then builds on your ability to be have even more success before. And that's very different than being told what to do, right? <laughs> it's experiencing that, uh, that component. And so that's the proper approach to the management of uh, both prevention and recovery uh, from chronic illness.
0: Mm. So um, let's let's move into sort of organizations. So I've I first reached out to you because I heard you on Peter Bregman's uh, Bregman Leadership podcast and you were talking about sort of healthy organizations. And as you know, I I, you know, as part of Well Start, we go into companies and you know our pitch is we're going to save you money you self insured employer because we're going to reduce the 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 need of health, for healthcare among your sickest employees and so there's there's a way in which the marketer and me thinks we have to talk specifically about well what is an average diabetic cost per year and if we get them to be pre diabetic or undiabetic what can we save and, and to do just a cost benefit analysis and make our pitch that way but in your talk with Peter, you were talking about something far broader and deeper and more noble and more powerful about this idea of, like, where, where organizations are just trying to be not toxic. But you, could, you <laughs> talk about, like, the purpose of an organization is to be a healing organization. And you're not just talking about hospitals and healthcare systems and medical practices. You're talking about computer companies and... Um, transportation companies, like for you that 's not a bottom line is that organizations need to be healing that 's not how business typically thinks about their mission. Can you talk about that, where that came from and and what you know, what what companies can do why first of all, why should they aspire to be healing organizations
1: Well, you know uh, you 've said it uh, enlightened organizational leaders understand. That when they care for their employees, that their employees are their most valuable asset, no matter what product they're producing. <laughs> uh, that their employees uh, and the and the environment and the families that they sit in, when they flourish, then their employees will produce more, and they'll have uh, a greater return on investment, they'll have greater profitability. That's been shown over and over and over again and uh, organizational leaders that uh, pay attention to that and see that uh, then act in that way. They support uh, their employees uh, to flourish Uh, and so this translates then into Uh, thinking about your organization not as just something that's going to have a gym somewhere or an incentive program that's going to try to get people to move, but actually to create an environment where they spend a huge amount of their time in one that they love, that they enhance in those areas. So you look at the physical environment. and Are they exposed to the things that humans need? Okay, natural light, good food, the ability to move. Uh, a a positive social environment, a meaningful work experience. All those elements then are going to make them enthusiastic about what they do and then give them the capability of actually doing it better. And that is going to translate to a flourishing organization and that's going to translate to profitability uh, and a good ROI. Uh, And so uh, this, this is what an optimal working environment is an optimal healing environment and an optimal working environment are aligned. And there's ways to do that. There's metrics that you can look at. There's assessment tools that you can do. Uh, There's sometimes very simple ways to set that up. Uh, And so leaders that are interested in that, uh, you know, they can can actually make that happen into their higher organization. Yes, you might save a little bit of money if you get your very sick, high-costly patients uh, to a cheaper treatment right <laughs> in those areas, because uh, they're going to co- because if you're paying for that, it, it, you know you'll be able to do it cheaper, but that's the tip of the iceberg compared to actual enhancing the productivity and the profitability of your country uh, your, of your company by enhancing the flourishing of the people that work for you
0: hmm. So why is that such a hard argument to make in, in most in most places you know so the the, the pushback I get is of i guess three basic kinds one is we're not running a nanny state right so we're not going to tell people what to do the second is listen we are really busy and i need my employees focused on our q2 mission which is to you know Increase customer retention. And, and that's what I want them to focus on that. And if you've got them focusing on breathing and meditation and and reversing their diabetes and losing weight, they're going to be split. And I can, you know, I can't have them spending all that time on the other stuff. And, and the third is that it's just it. It doesn't work. Wellness programs don't work. They don't have any ROI. And so we're, you yeah. know, every time we go to speak to a company, it's it's you know we we have this mountain to climb before we can even talk about
1: what we do or how it might help them. Yeah, so I think uh, I think that those explanations, uh, those, those arguments uh, have to do with a specific uh, misperception about human motivation, and that is that the best motivation is extrinsic motivation. <laughs> that if I set up the incentives that sort of move them uh by giving them uh sticks or carrots economically you know I'll give them incentives for example uh, uh economic incentives to try to drive people in that that is actually what's going to produce uh long-term change and that is wrong uh behavioral psychology has shown that it's wrong uh you can use uh an in- an economic incentive like a bonus or something like that to get people to start something okay <laughs> But it is very, it isn't counterproductive uh, to try to use that to get them to continue it. They actually don't continue it. That has to come from intrinsic motivation, which means that this is meaningful to me. It gets back to the meaning effect that we were talking about before. This makes sense to me. Uh, This is something that I like. This is something that uh, is connected to my life in other areas besides just my work. It's actually going to help me uh, enhance my ability to care for my family or or I enjoy being with other people and that type of thing. Those kinds of intrinsic motivations. And so the studies that have said worksite wellness programs don't work, most of those are very narrow focused on uh, trying to incentivize people externally, specifically around isolated behaviors, rather than looking at the whole person. And those get people to start, but they don't have long-term ROI because they don't sustain the process. Worksite wellness programs that are holistic – they look at the whole person, mind, body, social, spirit, uh, and meaning that we just talked about. Those actually do have a good ROI. They actually do produce uh, improved profitability over investment. And they also tend to be cheaper, actually, because they're simple things that cultivate uh, the joy uh, and the meaning uh, and the social positivity that occurs within the environment. That motivates people intrinsically to want to do the best. And that's what uh, leads to long term. Uh, productivity and and uh, and uh, profitability.
0: Hmm. It it reminds me of some of the studies I was looking at um, and working on whole about taking isolated vitamins, um, right, and finding out that it actually you know increased the the death rate from heart disease and, and lung cancer, whereas the the holistic diet patterns that contain
1: those vitamins prolonged life. That that's correct. And that's, that's the issue of a reductionistic science, which gives you lots of knowledge about little parts uh, and the care we have to take in saying, okay, therefore, we can just stick it in to the complex ecological whole systems that we are as human beings uh, and expect that to have the effect uh, in those areas. Application has to be done by paying attention to the whole person. Knowledge can be generated by isolating a certain component, but then the application has to... Uh, be taken uh, has to take uh, into attention of the whole person to do that, uh, and so that's a holistic approach. Whether it's in your work, whether it's in a healthcare delivery system, whether it's in your life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, you you work
0: with organizations to help them achieve this sort of healthy, you know, um,
1: optimal working and healing environment. We do. uh, The organization, I I now uh, work for a uh, a charity that supports and funds research in those areas. Uh, And I do work with organizations to help them get this conceptual framework and then begin to measure uh, each of those areas. Um, uh, But there's great groups that do this. So one of my my favorite is Envia. Uh, by Larissa McAllister, who actually, this is her this is her job. She has a PhD from uh, Georgia Tech in optimal healing and optimal work healthcare environments, and she will come into an organization and she will measure all those dimensions that I just talked about and show how you can tweak them in small ways and then track are they having the effect on the whole organization that you, that you want. So. For organizations that are really interested in that, they can contact me. Uh, I can give them uh, the general framework, and then I can put them in touch with groups that then can really help them get into the weeds about how to mm-hmm. do that uh, in you know in their companies.
0: Gotcha. So in, in terms of the research that you, your organization has done, is that's the Samuele Institute?
1: Yeah. So I used to run the Samuele Institute, uh-huh. uh, and, but now I uh, oversee the health philanthropies for the Samueli Foundation. So that's the that's the charity that uh, looks at advancing whole person integrative care uh, around the country and around the world. Um, so the uh, there is a Samueli Institute now, uh, mm-hmm. a, a, re- a renamed Samueli Institute. It's at the University of California, Irvine, and what they're doing is that they're creating integrative whole person approaches for medical education at the university for all of their healthcare schools. Uh, running clinics and providing community service in those areas uh, in the California area and as a representative uh, for other academic centers around the country and around the world. Gotcha. So,
0: um, so based on your, your research, what, what are the takeaways so far about how an organization can, can foster the, the health, healing, well-being, meaning, joy
1: of its employees? Yeah. So the key issues are to actually take the four areas of an optimal work environment uh, that I've described. I describe them in the book and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Envia, Laura McAllister actually has metric systems and others have metric systems around that. Uh, take a look at the physical environment first. Uh uh, the context and the place that you live stimulates what's uh, going on. If you have birds singing like that in the background, uh, it actually influences your unconscious. If you have natural light, it influences productivity. If you regulate noise, that actually improves significantly. Look at uh, does uh, your environment allow for movement? Does it environment does it allow for healthy foods? Okay, uh, easy to get accessibility in those areas. Does it produce stress, okay? Stress is a huge issue. has been shown in the work site to decrease productivity. There are ways to alleviate that stress very simply by creating a positive work environment uh, and allowing people to engage in safe, relaxing uh, components that are not fearful. Is there a supportive social and emotional component? Um, are people talking to each other in authentic ways? Do they trust each other? Uh, that creates teams that work better together. And don't interfere with each other. And then finally, uh, why are they there? What are they doing? Even if they're sitting at a computer coding, how is it connected to the larger picture in life? Most people want to do something meaningful uh, and help the world, okay, uh, in some way. And if they can see how what they're doing is connected and having an impact on the, a larger environment, then they're going to they're be more motivated, they're going to be more energized, and they're going to do a better job.
0: Hmm. So for that last one, does that mean that, say, um, you know, a company that's focused on its profits and its quarterly earnings is going to be inherently less connected to meaning than, say, a nonprofit or some noble social enterprise? Or can meaning be, you know, a smaller, more personal, less global thing?
1: You can embed meaning into any kind of an organization, profit or nonprofit. And I've seen very uh, uh, profit driven companies that create a flourishing environment for their employees and I've seen non-profit companies that create a very toxic environment for their employees. <laughs> uh, and so the profitability is not really the issue. I think uh, I think the, the short term uh, versus long term is much more important than that. Uh, if you lose the long term vision. Of the value of your own employees, because of the short-term, you know, next quarter commission, that's when you get into trouble, and that 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 can occur in nonprofits and in and in uh, for profits, uh, you know, uh, also. Uh, And so, I think that's the key issue: is making sure to pay attention to the core aspect of uh, what allows people to flourish. uh, You know, those dimensions that I've described. Uh, that everybody needs to actually find meaningful in those areas when you embed those uh, then then uh, then you, you 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 flourish and you improve. I remember a story uh, I think it was from the Mayo clinic uh, where a um uh, where a janitor who is mopping the floor gets interviewed by a reporter, uh, and, sa- and, they're, and they're you know they're at night mopping the floor and they're going into a patients uh, you know empty rooms where patients are going to be and they're cleaning it and everything, and the reporter says, well you know what do you do here at the Mayo Clinic? And they said, I create a clean environment environment so people can heal better <laughs> mm. <laughs> You didn't say I was just mopping the floor right <laughs> uh, so somehow that person realized that what they were doing were, was essential to keeping people alive healthy and flourishing uh, and they saw that connection to the larger environment and I thought that, uh, that was so insightful uh, you know in terms of how you create an understanding uh, within a work environment that connects to the bigger picture
0: Mm, yeah, it reminds me. I think Dan Ariely had a story in his book Payoff about a, a, tech, a, um, a custodian at a hospital who would make sure all the, all the swinging doors were oiled so that the the patients and the gurneys wouldn't get bumped. And you know, bumped, he's, right. he's, 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 he's <laughs> saw, He saw that as like his contribution to their to their healing.
1: You know, before and after surgery. Exactly. Yeah, there's a great book called Conscious Capitalism. I don't know if you've seen that, oh, but yeah, it's John really- Mackey. John Mackey, exactly. Which really, I think, in many ways, really captures what we're talking about, uh, and shows that the good and the profitable uh, not only can go hand in hand, but they must go hand in hand <laughs> if you mm-hmm. want to actually have uh, long-term, uh, you know, organizations that go from good to great. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, what are what are you uh, working on? now?
0: Um, yeah. You know, what are, what are the projects that you're hoping to push forward?
1: Yeah, so um, I have three major things that I'm doing right now. One is that uh, we, uh, the Samueli Foundation has just given a large grant to the University of California at Irvine to recreate and reinvent their entire healthcare educational system, medical, nursing, pharmacology, and public health around a whole person integrative components. And so that is a 10-year effort to try to create a major academic uh, health center that has integrative health as the primary driving philosophy around its education, uh, practice and research. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, I'm uh, working with national organizations. The National Academy of Medicine. Uh, we just had a we just supported a meeting with the Association of American Medical Colleges, the uh, healthcare, the medical schools of the uh, organization of the country, uh, to begin to talk about non-pharmacological approaches uh, to healing and getting them embedded in healthcare delivery systems, mainstream healthcare uh, delivery systems. And then the third thing that uh, that we do is that we look at at cancer and can we improve uh, the whole person approach to cancer. Uh, Can we make sure that uh, we understand how the microbiome, how stress, how nutrition, uh, how lifestyle influences and interacts with the immune system, with immune therapies for cancer, and we've just set up a center for integrative immuno-oncology to begin to do research in those areas, uh, the I2O. And so we're fostering that type of effort.
0: Wow. wow! I I interviewed a while back uh, Kelly Turner, who wrote a book, uh, I think, Radical Remission, which she she talked about, like, you know, nine factors that all these, you know, remarkable survivors of different cancers um, had used. Only two of them were sort of material. So, you know, the rest was all sort of mindset and stress and
1: forgiveness and and higher purpose. Um, Yeah. We know so much now because of the investment in the biology and the psychobiology of cancer and the microenvironment of the, the tumor microenvironment. We have so much knowledge about what are called the hallmarks of cancer. There are 12 hallmarks of cancer that good hardcore science has actually um, uh, discovered uh, that we need to now begin to apply what we know about that in the care of cancer patients and and get, uh, get past the old paradigm of simply kill the cancer. <laughs> right. We know that that in itself is not good enough and immuno-oncology, the manipulation of the immune system is really a breakthrough in our ability uh, to work with that microenvironment, so we really can take care of cancer patients in a whole person and holistic fashion. And there's no question that uh, the, the next age of cancer management is going to be so superior to what the last 50 years have been. Uh, the quality of life, the improved survival, uh, by integrating, uh, you know, conventional cancer care with some of the whole person approaches that we've just talked about around the science of the hallmarks of cancer. We need to apply that science now uh, and move that along. And so that's part of what the Samueli Foundation is trying to do.
0: Mm. And I, I, I love your approach to cutting edge science, because I read so many science books that are about, we're about to solve all of our problems you know, with, with gene therapies, and it's it's still sort of, you know I know you spent 20 years in the military, it's a military model of we yeah. are gonna conquer the terrain As opposed to what you're talking about with these personalized medicine, with information, with integration of we are going to create a flourishing ecosystem in your body, in your family, in your community, so that healing occurs
1: naturally. We're aligning ourselves with nature rather than trying to dominate it. That's correct. In the area of chronic disease, the magic bullet myth is actually uh, something we have to get away from and pay attention to uh, the whole person. Uh, we now have the tools and we now have the scientific understanding about how to do that. It's time to now actually make that reality for everybody.
0: Right. Well, right on. So the book, uh, I'll hold it up here for. Uh for people who are watching this on YouTube. It's called How Healing Works. Get well and stay well using your hidden power to heal. Um, Dr. Wayne Jonas, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you on this call and to to kind of bathe in your wisdom and kindness and compassion and and passion for for healing. So I really appreciate you taking the time and I really appreciate the work you've been doing and continue to do throughout this amazing career.
1: Well, thank you, Howie. And thank you for having me on your show and for all the great work that you do also. It's great talking to you. All right. Well, be well. I hope
0: we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with this wonderful, amazing, heartfelt, deep, brilliant man I encourage you to go get his book, it was really terrific, How Healing Works Uh, He covers a lot of the studies that we talked about in this conversation, a lot more And creates a beautiful narrative around what he considers to be integrative medicine Which includes our favorite type of medicine, lifestyle medicine It includes self-care and it includes these alternatives, things like uh, homeopathy, naturopathy, uh, Reiki, things that have not and may never be amenable to science, but certainly have a tradition behind them and certainly in the right hands and in the right contexts, can bring about those internal healing responses. So, again, the book is How Healing Works, Get Well and Stay Well, Using Your Hidden Power to Heal is published in 2018. And I think it's it stands with the best books that we have in our uh, plant-based world around how to be healthy. So this show is episode number 323, which means you can find the show notes at plantyourself.com slash 323. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the mission, the freest way to do it is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. The um, less freest way to do it is to become a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution. And you can do that at plantyourself.com. Just click Patreon in the right sidebar and you can become a member of this jolly team. And I will speedily say your name at the end of every episode. Uh, Just a reminder that this podcast is free for those who can't afford it because it's supported by those who can. So if you're one of the latter, uh, I'd love for you to roll up your sleeves and do your part. Thanks. So in garden news, I am a little bit uh, top-heavy with gummy berries. We have these two gummy bushes, Eliagnus multiflora. You can look them up. They are um, nitrogen-fixing berry bushes. I'm not exactly sure where they originated, but the berries are ripe now. They are delicious. They're tiny with big seeds, uh, droops, I believe, sort of a, t- a stone inside each little berry. And I can just pick them off the, the bush and, uh, and eat nothing else. Um, they are amazing and they're going to be, uh, I guess, fruiting for another few days. Hopefully then the blueberries will be in. Uh, we have a fence almost entirely around the garden now. It's a seven and a half foot high ten axe fence that we've been putting up all last week and seems to be doing its job with the deer and the groundhogs. They haven't figured out uh, any weaknesses yet, so fingers crossed. In running news, I had a fun half marathon on Sunday. I ran with Josh's wife, BJ, uh, for the first nine miles of the Umstead half marathon. And uh, then I got a bee in my bonnet that I wanted to break two hours, so I took off and... Um, Broke two hours on the wrong side, so I was at almost 2.02. Um, still finished strong, and it was a really beautiful day. Not uh, Well, it was kind of hot, but it was a beautiful day anyway, and a uh, fun race. And uh, the next running I'm going to be doing is uh, in Atlanta on June 8th at the um, Ultimate Frisbee Regionals to go to Nationals. I'll be with my great grandmaster team, which is people over 50. Um, playing uh, for a chance to uh, to go to Nationals. So that, that'll be a lot of running right there. All right, let's talk about thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace, as this show's theme music. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... <sighs> Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa, Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen David Bizek, the Mysterious, mm-hmm. Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Doloma, Nova Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Dudonic, Sarah Durkas, Rams Circus, Kelly, Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Kenneth Ben via Lessert, David Donahue, Blair Cybertarona Visov, Gio and Carolina Gentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth and Thunderbird, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergman, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Bury, Heather Morgan, Lashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Ruthless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Head of Garden, Ezekiel, Connie Hainlein, Erin Greer, Alicia Davis, Abibola El, El, Abibola El, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, Plant Powered for Health, just saw her this week at Peapod. Tara Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lunquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Kassia, Emily Iconelli Levy Wallach, Rosalind McAtee, Dan McCorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carson, Bill, Bill, Ian Bishop, Bill Burry Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Basher, Gunmarie Hagen. Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heeden, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, and Joan Borston for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review, let other people know about it, give us some stars, give us some love, and that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh who you think would benefit, send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest, or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join ARMS and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show, and it's free for everyone, and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one-time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherly, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonoski, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Ozina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Cara Adams, Frank Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Seiber, Torona Viso, Gio and Carol Argetati, Jody Friesner, with Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Panda vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Diane Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marian Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuziwakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Liz Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linane Lundquist, Valerie Humble, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lennon... Pettie DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Basher, Gun marie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parim Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sitarowska, Alison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Edible Musings, Erin Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.